Let's pray before we go to the word. Let's do that. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your word. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to receive it. It is holy. It is precious. Give us the grace to receive it, to believe it, and to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said... In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What does it mean? To be poor in spirit. I mean, when you read that, isn't that the question that comes to mind? Now, I'll confess, we read the whole Beatitudes. That's the Beatitudes. That's what it's commonly called. That's like the calling card for the Christian. If you were to put a business card and write all the things that Christians should be, that would be what you put on it. So uh, these are the Beatitudes. But we're going to focus right there on the first verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So when you read that, blessed are the poor in spirit, that question, I don't know, for me anyway, that's what comes to mind. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? I mean, I know what it means to be poor. It means that we don't have the means to an end. I don't have uh, the ability to do certain things. But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? How does that work? What does that look like? And why is that a blessed thing? Let's look at what it means to be poor in other ways. If we are poor in cash, then we lack the means of money, right? So that means that we can't do the things that we need cash to do. We can't do the things that we need money to do. There are places that we can't go. There are things that we can't do because we don't have the means of money. It also means that we have to have budgets and we have to live within our means and we have to count every dollar and make every dollar count. People who aren't poor in cash, they don't have to worry about those kinds of things. They're not necessarily worried about strictly sticking to budgets. They don't have to count every dollar. They have a bit of leeway, right? Because they have an abundance of cash. Their priorities aren't the same as people who are poor in cash. 
If you're poor in cash, then something as simple as a flat tire, if you have a car even, can be a, a big deal. It can be a really big deal. A major issue. If you struggle uh, with cash, if you're poor in cash, you can struggle to put food on your table or shoes on your children's feet. If you're poor in cash, you can struggle to put a roof over their heads. And those who are really poor in cash find themselves needing to ask others for help just for the very basic things in life, just, just to meet the basic needs like food and shelter. And they have to live on the generosity and kindness of others. It is not inconsequential that Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. And he also said, give to everyone who comes to you begging. Amen. Amen. The same thing is true if, you are, uh, if your poverty is in other areas like health, for instance. If we're poor in health, then we are limited in the things that our bodies can do, right? Amen. We have to make different choices about the things that we eat, the things that we drink. We have to take certain medications. We have to avoid certain strenuous activities. For many people, the poverty of health is so severe that they have very little health left in them. They're bedridden. We've heard about some of those Folks this morning and prayer requests that have Amen. been lifted up. They're, they're hooked up to machines and they, they have machines that are even keeping them alive. Someone else has to, to feed them. Someone else has to clothe them. Their life consists of very little living because the poverty of health. They're so poor in health. Now, none of that sounds very blessed, does it? So why in the world would Jesus begin his sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit? Even in, in, in fact, in Luke, Luke 6.20, when he preaches a parallel sermon, not the same sermon, but a parallel sermon in Luke 6.20, a sermon on the plain, he says, blessed are the poor. Why, why would he begin the Sermon on the Mount where he's, where he's presenting to us the way? Why would he say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, none of that sounds very blessed at all. Well, let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's look, let's kind of set the scene here. Who, who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he talking to? We have to look at the previous verses to find out. So if you back up to verse, or chapter 4, verse 23, you'll see that Jesus is going through all of Galilee. He's teaching and proclaiming the gospel. And, um, and he's healing the sick. And he's, everybody's bringing sick people to him. And he's healing them. And he's performing miracles. In verse 24, it says that his fame is spreading throughout all the land, all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick and afflicted and all those who are oppressed by demons. And um, all those who are having seizures and all the people who are paralyzed. And, and, and Jesus is healing them. And then because of his teachings and because of the great signs and wonders, there were great crowds that followed Jesus. In verse 25, we see that from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, these great crowds followed him. So you have these great crowds from all over the region following Jesus in verse 1 and seeing the crowds. You're gonna, your Bible's going to have a division there. 
that's going to have a chapter division, but that's an artificial division. That is added later by the scholars to help us find references in the Bible. It's just like it's a road map. It's the, the only purpose that these chapter and verse divisions serve is to help us find locations in the Bible. They're not necessarily there to serve as divisions of thought or to divisions of theme. Now, sometimes they line up that way, but that's not the point of them. The point is just to be location markers. They weren't in Matthew's gospel when he wrote it. They weren't there when Matthew... He didn't put chapter and verse numbers in when he, when he wrote the gospel. So when chapter 5 begins with seeing the crowds, that's a continuation of the thought of the last sentence in chapter 4, which were that the great crowds that followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So in other words, there are lots of people there. Do you remember another great crowd that we were told about that Jesus ministered to and how big that one was? One of the great miracles that's recorded of Jesus' ministry was that he fed the 5,000 and that was just the men, uh, not, not including the women and the children. So we don't know what the text, I mean the text doesn't tell us, but there's every indication this crowd could have been just as big if not bigger. So who was in the crowd? So we know this, this is a large crowd. It was a big crowd. The Decapolis itself was a region of 10 different cities. I mean, this was, these were from all over. Who was in the crowd? We know that from the text itself here that it was the sick, it was the afflicted. Those were people, and, and then the people who brought the sick and afflicted to him, so their families. Presumably it was those who couldn't afford the care of a physician. Why else would they be bringing him to them to Jesus? Otherwise, they would have sought the care of a physician. We also have other clues in Scripture. This was not the first sermon that Jesus preached. And that's important for us to know. His first recorded sermon was in Luke chapter 4 when he stood in the synagogue and opened the scroll of Isaiah. Luke chapter 4 verse 18. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So who do we know is in this crowd that Jesus is preaching to? The poor, those who were captive, slaves, servants, the blind and the oppressed, and all the things that those words mean. So you have this massive crowd of people who are at the bottom of their society, very few of them, if any of them, had any kind of power or authority or influence. Many of them were slaves or servants to somebody else. They'll never make enough money to buy their way out of that. The church has cast them out and labeled them as unfit for worship because of their station. The wealthy have turned their back on them because if you're poor, it, it must be because it's God's judgment on you for your sin. Most of them are hungry because food wasn't as readily available as it is to us today. They didn't eat until they were full like we do. Many of them are sick and afflicted, and that also is a sign of God's judgment on them because of their sin, which is, again, why the church rejected them and labeled them unfit for worship. Many are crippled. They haven't walked in their whole life, and there's no cure for that. Some are blind. They haven't seen the sun or the trees or their loved ones ever, and there's no cure for that. Some are afflicted in their mind. They're oppressed, and there's no cure for that. 
They can't keep things straight in their head. They have seizures and they're in constant torment. And their families are in torment because they can't. They don't know how to deal with that. And so they're looking for hope. They're looking for deliverance. These are the poor. And there is nothing, nothing about their situation that says blessed. Well, maybe just one thing. <laughs> all eyes were on Jesus. Amen. Amen. Because all hope and expectation yes, sir. Yes, sir. was yes, in sir. Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but just saying that gave me chills. Yes, sir. And I Amen. wrote it. <laughs> so back to the question what does it mean to be poor? In spirit. One of those guiding principles that we talked about uh, last time was that the way of the Christian is humble and authentic. So right off the start, Jesus begins by saying that it is blessed to be poor in spirit because those who are poor in spirit have a wealthy possession in the kingdom of heaven. So in Matthew 18, the disciples are having a discussion about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, in verse 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So they're all worried about who's greatest. And Jesus said, unless you become children, you're never even going to get there. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So being poor in spirit means being spiritually humble like children. Now, you may be thinking, my kids aren't very humble. <laughs> they talk back to me. Um, they, you know, but that's just, that's just culture issues. Um, but think about being poor or being humble as a child. Think about the relationship of a child to his parents in terms of the child's needs or the child's needs being met and where the child goes for his needs to be met in terms of his emotional needs and his physical needs, and all of that, and apply that spiritually. If we go to Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus tells us about a parable of a man who is spiritually humble, um, so he's poor in spirit, and another man who is spiritually prideful, so he's full of himself. Luke 18, chapter 9, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he says, he told a parable of, Someone or to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And he says this in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, that's the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at the difference between the two men. Now, there's some obvious differences, of course, 
in the attitude, but look at what they say. Look at what they say. The Pharisee came to God bragging. Now, he disguised it as a thankfulness. He disguised it as, a, as thanking God, but he was bragging, and then he ended it up with judging. He came to God to make a statement, to, to make a show. He put himself on display because he had much to display, right? He came to God essentially rich. The tax collector came to God humbled by his lack of things to display. And so he came to God begging. He came to God seeking. He came to God poor. We have to recognize that we have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. Amen. 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 Correct. We can't, we don't have anything to bring to the table. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Being poor in spirit means being spiritually dependent. So we're humbled because we have nothing to bring to the table. And so there's nothing, there's no source of pride there. There's no way for me to stand and say, look what, look, look, Lord, at what I can bring to you. Look at what I deserve to enter the kingdom. So there's humility. I got nothing. That's right. Amen. There's Amen. nothing here that should earn me a place at right. the table. Much less, there's nothing that I can put on the table. Yes. Which leads us to spiritual dependency. Amen. Being poor in spirit makes us dependent. Mm-hmm. All of our words, all of our righteousness, all of our works... All of our efforts to cleanse ourselves are for nothing apart from Jesus Christ. They're for nothing. The more that we trust in our works, the more that we trust in ourselves, the more that we are leaning on our pride. And that puts, it puts money in our spiritual bank. Amen. Which, when we do that, we remove the need to rely on somebody else. It removes the need to rely on Jesus. We become like that Pharisee. We start pulling uh, all of our works. We pull those out. We pull out all of our deeds. We pull out all of our justifications. And we pull out all of our excuses. Did you know that you can use justifications and excuses as spiritual currency? Just like you use works and deeds as spiritual currency. Oh, we do it. We do it. We use this, those things as spiritual currency, uh, you know, for why we haven't spent time reading the Bible. We use our excuses and justifications. We use those excuses and justifications as spiritual currency for why we haven't spent time in prayer and why we don't practice Christian generosity. All of our excuses, we line those up for why we don't do the things, the works and deeds that Christians are supposed to do. Now let me say something about works and deeds before I go on about those. They don't justify you. They're not a ticket to heaven, but they are rewards in heaven. We've talked about, we spent a lot of time talking about money and possessions and rewards in heaven. There's a reason that we've been doing all that. Y'all know I had a plan for this, right? We've been on this a long time. In fact, one year ago today, this Sunday, one year ago this Sunday, oh, I looked it up just the other day. I preached a sermon. Um, Now I'm drawing a blank, but it was... uh, it had to be the Lord because we talked about 
Oh, yes, living life to the glory of God. All of life for the glory of God mm-hmm. is what it was. We ended the series that we had begun on, on heaven. And it's interesting that we begin the series, taught, we begin looking at the Sermon on the Mount and actually dig into the first verse where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And why are they blessed? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That wouldn't make a hill of beans to you or a matter of hill of beans to you if you didn't have a concept of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. There's a plan. God has one for us, Amen. just so you know. We put all those things, all of our excuses, all of our works and all that stuff, and we try to pile those up into our spiritual bank. And we try to spend those things like they're gold, like it's actual money. That's what people do. They say, but Lord, look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. You know, Jesus said, many will come to me in that day, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things? Right? And they'll say, I never knew you. We try to spend all this currency like it's spiritual currency, like it's gold, but it's fool's gold. It's fool's gold. Jesus said that you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. When you have nothing to spend. That means that you can't pay for what you need. In Matthew 9, Jesus was at Matthew's house and he was eating lunch with a bunch of other tax collectors. And the Pharisees saw that Jesus was having lunch with a bunch of other tax collectors and they, they came up to his disciples and they were all up in a tizzy over it and they, and they said, uh, hey, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so in Matthew 9 verse 12, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go then and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let me break that down for you. That's a whole lot of words. I'm going to put it in a few words. Jesus said, I didn't come for those who have no need of me. Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. What a dreadful state to be in, to have no need of Christ. So to be spiritually full of yourself... Is a dreadful thing to be. Amen. Amen. To have no need of a savior. To have no need of saving. See, we're in this. That's one of the. That's one of the. I love this country, but that's one of the problems with Americanism. We're so self-sufficient, and we pride that so much that you know it's it's a bad thing to need someone else. But you know what? We need Christ. Amen. And we got to get over that. We got to need Him. You need to need Him. And it's a blessed thing to need Him. Amen. Amen. Christ calls us to depend on Him because it is only by Him and through Him that we can be saved. It is by faith in Him alone that we can enter heaven. Spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit, necessarily means spiritual dependency on Christ. We can by no means do it on our own. We have to depend on Him. When you're poor, you don't have the money to spend. Do you see? And if you think you've got it, then you don't got it. Being poor in spirit means being spiritually grateful. Jesus said it was a blessed thing. It is a blessed thing to be poor in spirit. 
When I began this morning, I talked about people who are poor in different ways, like being poor in cash. That's how we can most, most of us relate to poorness, to the state of being poor, not having a much, enough money. That's the way we see it most in society, being poor in cash. That's, there's a certain way that, I mean, generally speaking, there's a certain way that people who are poor in cash will ap- approach material things versus people who have a lot of money. Now, I, am, I say generally because I am painting with broad brushes here in order to make a point. Obviously, there are exceptions, and those exceptions are numerous. Not everybody is the same, but I'm making a point. You can look at children, for example. A child that comes from, from a wealthy home that has an abundance, and the child is never told no, and he has everything that he wants, and gets what he wants, and he has a different appreciation for things than a child who comes from a poor home who is told no a lot out of necessity by his parents because they don't have the means to provide for him the things that he wants and desires. Maybe his needs are met, but his wants aren't. Do you know what I mean? There's a difference between wants and needs. I grew up in a home that all my needs were met, but my wants weren't. I had a lot of wants that went wanted. They stayed wants for a long time. So you can take those same two children and you can give them, you know, the one who has plenty and gets what he wants and the one who comes from lack and he, he doesn't get what he wants. He's told no a lot. And you, you can give them each a trinket, the same trinket. And what kind of reaction are you going to get from each one? From the child who comes from lack, the one who's used to having nothing, who rarely receives anything, more than likely the trinket is going to be something special. More than likely, you're going to have a reaction that is, is grateful. More than likely, he's going to be joyful at having received this, and he's going to value it. To the child that gets everything, um, you're going to have a much different reaction. He'll probably treat it like what it is, just a trinket. You know that kid that that gets nothing, that, that values it. I'm thinking of like Tiny Tim from Charles Dickens, you know, that, that character. He just, he, he appreciates what he has and what, you, what you've given him. In fact, in the other kid, the kid who has everything, the one that when he treats your trinket like a trinket, he might even be offended by what you've given him because it's beneath him. Amen. And certainly there's no gratitude for the gift and there's no joy for the gift. Jesus said to be poor in spirit is to be blessed because you have a wealthy possession. In fact, he said that those who are poor in spirit have the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a now thing. Amen. Amen. That's present tense. Amen. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus tells us a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And he says this, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, why would he buy the field? So that he could have the treasure, right? That's presumably the reason why he goes and buys the field. So he could have the treasure. So he does that. He sells everything he has. Why? What does the text say? 
in his joy because he had found a treasure. The treasure made him joyful. And in his joy, it was his joy to do what with all his other stuff? To get rid of it so that he could have the treasure. Not just a treasure, but everything around it. Everything about it. I want everything about that treasure. I want the stuff it's in. I want the stuff that is around it. I want what it's buried in. I want it all. I want everything about that treasure. And I don't want anything else that I have. All that is junk to me now. Sell it, get rid of it. I want what that I want the treasure and whatever else is around the treasure. That's the backdrop. He found something so precious to him, everything else paled in its worth. We don't know the value of his possessions. We're not told that this man was a rich man with a lot of possessions or a poor man with very little possessions. We don't know what he paid for the field. All we know is that he sold everything he had. Whatever he found was was so precious to him that everything else he had was was nothing to him compared to what he wanted to get in that field. And he didn't just want to get what was in the field. He wanted the whole field. He wanted to buy the whole to protect what he had in the field. And it wasn't that the field was the kingdom of heaven. It was the treasure. But I want everything around it because I don't want I don't want anything to, to compromise that treasure. Yes. Nothing to compromise that treasure. To receive the treasure was great joy. And it is a blessed thing. And I wonder Amen. have we received the kingdom of heaven that way? That's something to think about. Amen. Amen. Have we received it that way? Because that brings me to the next point. And this is kind of a hard one. Because the poor in spirit, because they receive the kingdom of heaven like that, they are also spiritually focused. In Luke chapter 9, a man is, in fact, there are several people that come up to Jesus, but there's one in particular that just struck me. In Luke chapter 9, verse 62, 61, a man comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, I want to follow you, but first let me go and tell my parents and my family goodbye. Let me go say goodbye to them. And in verse 62, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow is fit or, and, and looks back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He just wanted to go say goodbye to his family. Let me follow you, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And he says, dude, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven, of God. Same thing. Think of the crowd that was gathered that day at the Sermon on the Mount. All the eyes were on Jesus as he's speaking. Not only did they come to hear what he had to say, they came to receive deliverance from their afflictions. And as long as they stayed with their eyes on him, as long as they heard with their ears tuned to what he was saying, as long as their hope was in him, they're good. 
As long as we do the same, we're good. He is our source. There are so many examples throughout the history of the scripture. As long as we stay focused on God, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Just a couple of obvious examples for time's sake. Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? You know, your salvation is in this city over here. But if you look back to Sodom and Gomorrah, if you turn and look back to where you came from, then you'll be turned into a pillar of salt. And what did she do? She was fine as long as she kept her eyes forward, but she looked back. And then, of course, Peter, when he gets out of the boat to walk on water, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he's fine. But once he started looking around, that's when the problems begin to happen. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. He's very often quoted in his letter to the Philippians in Chapter 3, verse 14, where he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. That's an excellent example, Paul. And we should all press toward that goal. It's an excellent example of putting our hand to the plow and pressing forward. We should all press. But what he says before that is of equal importance. In verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not count myself to have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That's like the blinders that you put on the horse or the mule or whatever to keep them from getting distracted. You got to forget what lies behind and strain forward. I love the wording, straining forward. Sometimes it's a strain to stay focused to stay forward because there's a whole lot of distractions that will take you off the way. Amen. 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 whole lot of things to grab your attention from the way. Amen. Amen. Do you see that? We can't, we can't take our hands off the plow. We can't look back because if we do, we're not worthy of the kingdom. That's hard. The reason that we look back is hidden in the things that we look back for. Mm -hmm. It's hidden in the why Mm -hmm. of our looking back. Mm -hmm. Remember the parable of the man who found the treasure in the field. Mm -hmm. He sold everything he had. He had nothing to look back to. The poor in spirit have nothing in their bank, so there's nothing, there's no other well for them to draw from but Christ. Amen. 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 Jesus met a man, you remember him, you know him as the rich young ruler. Mm-hmm. He came to Jesus and he said, What must I do to earn eternal life? And Jesus said, You know what to do, you know, don't murder, don't cheat, don't steal, you know, all those things. And the guy's like, Well, hey, I do all those things. Jesus said, Well, there's just one more thing. You, you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And then the Bible says, and the man left very sad because great were his possessions. He had a whole lot to look back on. So he didn't see that treasure the same way that the man in the parable saw it. He didn't see the kingdom as a great treasure. What did he see more value in? The things of earth? Fool's gold, 
Right? Our only hope is to keep our hands on the plow and our eyes on him. If you find yourself looking back, then you haven't sold all your possessions and you haven't bought the field and you haven't obtained the treasure of the kingdom. Don't look back. And when you see yourself getting distracted, put your head and your face in the book. Mm-hmm. Get on your knees and pray. Lord, set my sights strictly on you. We have to be, Paul said that we have to take care of the faith that is within us. Amen. Amen. You have to guard it. Mm-hmm. Let me conclude by saying this. I love to go on hikes. It's a, it's a fun thing for me. I like to explore in the wilderness. I love to go on trails through the forest. And, and every trail has a trailhead. It has a beginning. Every journey begins with a single step. In chapter 7 of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus is bringing this Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion. He describes the way... And as he's describing this journey, he's saying that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. So when he begins the sermon, he closes it by saying the gate is narrow and the way is hard. He begins the sermon by telling us what the gate is, showing us the gate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that? That's the door. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the trailhead. Mm-hmm. That's the gate. He starts there because that's where the road starts. That's where we start. That's the gate to the way. We come to him poor. Mm-hmm. We come to him dependent. We don't have anything to bring to the table. We come to him humble, totally dependent like children. And what a joy it is to have found this treasure. A treasure that makes us count everything else as loss. So we keep our hands to the plow. And we keep our eyes focused on him. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for this time we've had together and I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you show us what it means to be spiritually poor. Help us to see that we come to you bringing nothing and that you are the well, the fountain from which we drink. You are the source of our our strength. You are the source of our salvation. You are the the life from which we draw life. Strengthen us as we go our separate ways, Lord. Strengthen us to serve you and to live for you and to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you all.